0: If you weren't Paul McCartney, who would you like to be? Oh, (laughs) Margaret Thatcher. (laughs) Okay, fine, fine. (laughs) (laughs) No, well, I'd change a few things, you see, if I was her. No, on second thoughts, (laughs) maybe the clothes wouldn't suit me. No, no, I don't think so. Who would I like to be, seriously? Seriously. I don't know. Um, I don't really envy anyone, you know. Can is going to be serious though. Hey. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about it. Anyway, thank you Paul. Felix, you're welcome. And here's a and here's your last video. Pretty, pretty little head. Oh, great. I like that one too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway,
1: Welcome to this week's One Latest Fab. I'm Ed Shin.
2: And I'm back. I'm John Stone.
1: Yay! We're happy, although you're not going to be with us next week because you're off busy doing other things.
2: Other things. Sorry, it just can't be helped.
1: Also joining us, since we can't throw John back into the water so immediately, is our good friend, our original fan, Martin Bell Yay! Hey, Martin.
3: Belated happy birthday to Paul...
2: <laughs> yeah. Much too and late. Happy birthday to George. Paul's just a baby. He's just 80. Ringo's
1: 82. That's right. Ringo's 82. And Julian's only 59. Wow. And therefore, Kyoko. She too is 59. So, well, depending on when her birthday is, I don't actually know when her birthday is. Right. Julian has come out with two more of his songs. He's also come out with the cover of his album surprise surprise it's julian as a six or seven year old so. again playing
3: on the history and there's nostalgia
1: the jude thing yeah it's yeah. what do we think of the two new songs the first is called breathe
2: i like it
3: i like it what i've heard so far of the songs it's actually my favorite of the four released so far
2: the note i took at the time of listening to it was that John would recognize himself in this music.
1: He might. He's a little bit more mid-tempo than I would like, I think. Well, that's being picky.
3: Maybe. I mean, I was listening to it and I was thinking, it has a similar sort of tempo and feel and laid-back approach to Save Me, but it's much better. It's got much cleaner and nicer chord changes to it, and the lyrics are incredible, and it's got... a Beautiful production that exceeds the other songs as well.
1: Although the middle eight reminds me a little bit of Broken Wings by Mr. Mister. A bad thing? There's enough of it there it's like, uh, okay, alright
2: He went and saw Ringo play
3: <laughs> I was about to say perhaps he's going to do an album that's full of songs that sound like Ringo's <laughs> uh, all-star band and he's trying to get in the all-star band
2: What I've heard, I think this is going to be a cool album Save Me I like, it. dramatic, it has a really good sense of melody The first one was, uh, what was, Every Little Moment, which kind of sounds like Don Henley in a way you know, it has an energy to it, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Sounds like it'll be a decent album.
3: Yeah, the Don Henley thing, I found that as well. I was listening to the drum machine programming, and, and that is, is the same sort of thing that he did back in the days when he was doing, like, you know, the uh, end of The Innocence and that sort of rhythm in the background and right, the, the, right. the mix of the programmed with the natural, real instrumentation mixed together that was used back then by Don.
2: Yeah,
1: It still has a very sort of late 80s, early 90s feel, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing.
3: I think it works for all four songs. I think they've all got that sort of feel to them to a degree, but in a more modern, produced
2: way. I don't know that I hear anything that I think, that'll be on the radio, but I think it's good work.
1: You know, maybe he's come to accept that. I've got a certain fan base that's a fan base because of my dad, and then I've also got a certain fan base that is genuinely my fan base But I'm not going to pick up many new listeners, so I'm putting this out because this is the work that I've done. I'm happy with it, and I hope you guys are too.
2: I think that that's a good way of putting how most artists have to be these days. There are going to be some that break through, but most people who put stuff out are going to have to be okay with whatever audience they can attract.
3: I think you've got a good point though, Ed, because I, th- I thought the previous album, as much as there was a lot of uh, good stuff on his previous album, I almost thought as though he was trying to get something more out of it. Whereas now, yeah, there's more of an acceptance in the music, but the only problem I've got with that is he's falling back on the hey june and the, you know the relationship to the other Beatles to his
1: father's. Legacy with the pictures and the promotional artwork. To my mind, it's probably just a little bit much, particularly given his own reluctance to sit comfortably amongst both his father and his Beatles legacy. But, I mean, you know, what are you going to do? I wouldn't have called the record Jude, but he's entitled. It is his legacy.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's his life. He has to bring in his history and who he is and yeah, you know, I suppose you can say, well, he's playing on his Beatle legacy, but everybody who has it does. Yeah, perhaps the management
3: and the record company right. that he's signed to have suggested these things to him to do with the promotion of it. Right.
1: He has not had a reluctance to go back to that At any point in the past, there's the whole I Don't Want to Know video. There's his last single, which was Lucy. It is his life and great, but it can seem a bit much.
3: The Photograph Smile album, that had pictures from back then included in the artwork as well.
1: I would be more willing to accept this if he did some of what Sean does and, and he you know he does a little bit of it I mean he did certainly go and do the interview for the Beatles channel but you don't see Julian talking about his memories of living with his dad in the 60s and you know, granted there weren't that many memories for him probably but there's still certainly something that he could say or he doesn't even go and talk about Cynthia I'd like to hear an hour of Julian talking about his mother on the Beatles channel sometime. Right, but
2: I can understand his feeling of my life is not there for you to dissect. And uh, I certainly recognize what it did to my father. And so uh, I'll put out what I choose to put out. And I don't have to do that sort of thing or don't want to do that sort of thing. It's just kind of like the hunger of Beatle fans to hear more stuff. But I don't think he has any kind of obligation to meet that.
1: Jane Asher does not want to go out and talk about her time with Paul McCartney, but she also doesn't ever bring it up. It's like it never happened almost. You know, if Julian did that, fine.
3: Do any of us look at our previous relationships?
1: Cynthia certainly <laughs> did. Up until she passed, she wrote, what, four separate books on John, and she never hesitated to go out in the media and talk about her time with John Lennon. And that's without even mentioning May Pang, who has her documentary out now.
3: Right. Which was suggested by yourself, and then she went and made one.
1: (laughs) The week after. (laughs) That's the Julian thing. I think that these four songs are interesting. I don't like them quite as much as you do. I I do think Breathe is good. I actually like the Save Me song a little bit better, mainly because I think the other three songs are all just a little bit too long. I know John Doesn't like me saying that, but it's like, (laughs) to my mind, they could each do with about a minute cut off of them.
3: (laughs) I have a problem with the song Freedom, where it's, it's in need of contrast, if that makes any sense. It's building to something that never comes, in a sense. I can see that. Other than that, it's a nice section of a song.
1: Yeah, I would almost say that about everything we've gotten so far. I don't really love any of the songs, but there's a lot of nice little pieces throughout. And, you know, maybe when we get the whole record, it'll make a little bit more sense.
3: He could have done a poll and sent it all to Kanye West, and he would have made a hit single out of him.
1: There you go.
2: Still a possible project.
3: There you go, Julian. That's your next album. Jude and (laughs) Yee. Jude (laughs) Yee.
1: Next topic, is Paul... As prolific as Prince was. You look at all of the outtakes. Paul's done a hell of a lot of recording over the last 50 years.
2: A lot. He, he's put out 47 proper albums, not including live. And that includes Fireman and his classical stuff. But 47 albums in a little over 50 years. And he's probably got about four albums worth of stuff not released or not released very well.
1: Well, we know that there's a classical album, a bunch of pieces that he's put together that hasn't been released proper. Uh, there's the pre-Flowers in the Dirt album, the Return to Pepperland. Return to
2: Pepperland, yeah. Yes.
1: Will it be the same love that you
4: to me?
3: Which I want as an extra on uh, Press to
1: Play full-length albums I don't know are there at least two more full-length albums Uh, there's one that I can think of that doesn't really have a title
2: know why Mike Carnival isn't on an album with The Mess and Girls School you know there's a really good album out there and there are songs as we were talking about Gotta Sing Gotta Dance "Robber's Ball which sounds like a Disney movie song He does a bunch of stuff that doesn't make it out or might make it out as one of a couple of songs on a B-side of a single that doesn't do very well.
1: Well, I mean, there's the whole UbuJubu radio show. That's 13 weeks, and there's at least one or two real songs that he's never released on each of those shows.
2: Yeah, right. So there's a lot of work. And so you have that, and you have bits and pieces. There are recordings of two or three versions of each of these songs. And I'm just saying, this man is prolific. And you could hear bits and pieces where... You can see he's just kind of jamming and getting some ideas together. And then he'll use a piece on something else or it develops later on into something real. All that stuff takes time. You're in the studio, you're working. I'm just saying he's prolific.
0: And if you didn't guess, this track is called Peacock's.
1: I think he's always coming up with tunes. He's always thinking about harmonies. He talks about that he just dashes off these quick memos where he'll sort of hum things to himself on his phone. <laughs> Yeah. Every single one of those could probably be picked out and turned into a real song.
3: Yeah. He needs somebody like Rick Rubin or something. It needs just, you know, to for Rick to say to him, All those notes that you've got, send them to me, I'll get back to you and tell you what you can make an album. Right.
1: Well, there's something that he could do with Kanye. I mean, you know, yeah. four or five seconds, that was actually kind of interesting from Paul's just little doodles.
2: When you listen to a lot of these things, the range is incredible from little guitar riffs with a tune that never goes anywhere to big massive productions of sound and just different genres well,
0: you better stop you don't know where she Stop. Yes, in fact, we will stop just there. That was a track from Rude Studio original demo. It's really incredible.
1: And he's actually been slowing down through the years. Red Road Speedway. There's literally a million songs from the Red Road Speedway sessions, and they're all at least to the point that they're songs. Even RAM, we
3: haven't had everything that was recorded because those sessions were exhaustive. Right. And they even said after after RAM came out, they discovered recordings that they wished they'd had to be able to put on RAM because there were just so much.
1: Now, to make the comparison, Prince is awfully prolific.
4: <laughs> Speaking to Rolling Stone, Prince's sister, Taika Nelson, described Prince's output level as being at a rate that
3: outpaced even the record industry or any record label. As a result, there was a huge amount of work that Prince created produced so quickly that the entertainment world
2: couldn't keep up.
3: Well, his studio was downstairs.
2: Yeah, and it was very convenient, and he was very prolific. But, you know, Paul's studio's not far from his house.
1: I will bet that there are at least a couple dozen songs that he didn't use on McCartney 3 that he just kind of got sitting there that he's probably gotten as far as turning them into songs.
3: I wouldn't be surprised. I actually thought when McCartney 3 came out, this can't be all that there was.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just probably the best. Frank Sinatra's Party, it's a nice little fun tune, but there's a reason why it didn't come out until a B-side to an Egypt Station single.
2: Yeah, I think yeah. some of the stuff is just fun ear candy for him, and it's kind of brave sometimes that he puts some stuff out because it gives him that, hey, I like this. It wouldn't seem like it was Paul McCartney, but you know, every time you take one of your pieces and put it out to the public... It takes a certain amount of bravery.
1: kind of think i would have to give prince the edge on that just because we know that he's got at least a dozen lps that have never been released full lps
3: i bought one of those last year when it came out an album that they'd recorded of princes and uh, they'd not released until last year and that was an incredible album i can't remember what the title of it was now welcome to
1: america man it's 2021 and we're talking about
2: new unreleased Prince music. That is pretty amazing. I had a a copy of the Black Album years ago, which I gave to somebody as a birthday present. It was definitely prolific.
1: And some of that is just being fortunate enough to be a professional musician and having both the time and the ideas. It's not necessarily that they're great songs or that they're even finished songs, but there's something there that someone could do something with, whether it's you or somebody else. Right. I think Paul leans more toward the, I've got a billion doodles, some of which I've turned into songs, but even those songs aren't necessarily finished songs. We talk about people have taken Lennon songs, people have taken now and then, and sort of done up versions of that. I think someday when we do get to hear all these doodles, there are going to be Paul McCartney written songs (laughs) coming out by other people well into the next century.
2: (laughs) Right. The modern Mozart. True. This all came about because I got into listening to an album called Cold Cuts, which he intended to put out at one point and has got a lot of unknown songs. This ought to be part of the McCartney canon, as it were.
1: Although a lot of those have come out in the various archive editions.
2: Right. He's tended to split some of these up into the recording sessions that he was doing, you know, if, if he was working on Venus and Mars, my carnival would be in that. And whenever he were, was recording, something is where he put these things. But some of them didn't come out at all. There's an interesting side issue, which is, um,
3: how did My Carnival end up being the B-side to Spies Like Us, and then Mama's Little Girl end up on the Put It There single, I think it was. And all these songs from that era of Wings suddenly appeared in the mid-80s to the mid-90s. Completely out of context. <laughs> Yes.
1: I think it's due to Paul going through his archives and just sort of picking things up. Again, he doesn't forget anything. He knows more or less everything he's ever written. So I think in terms of the question you're asking, he was probably working on yet another version of cold cuts. There are at least five separate (laughs) bootlegs of cold cuts out there. Yeah, But it was terrible
3: for someone like me because I was 15, I think, when... um, spies like us the single came out and i bought that and uh, i had the shaped picture disc as well you know the one that was shaped and then i had the vinyl that was picture disc as well back then and then i listened to that and then i turned it over and i heard my carnival and i'm I'm looking i'm thinking oh it's a new song by wings i wonder if they're working again together (laughs) right right. so and then it was suddenly oh no it's from back in the day you look at the the date oh okay no, he's
1: not we'd had that on bootlegs forever because was it that year when he was at mardi gras they actually played it on the news
2: yeah it was part of a news clip and it wasn't a good sounding record
1: it was was it live or was it uh, i don't i forget where where the version that was on the bootleg came from but it was yeah. out there
2: mama's little girl i can see putting it on the b side of put it there because they're both guitar kind of song they complement each other but it was in a weird place
3: technically with the archive release of red Rose speedway you've got two different albums there right
1: yeah the single album the
3: double album and the double album there's so much material on there that never ended up on the eventual album that you got an album's worth of material at least there that was new that wasn't on the released version
2: right there's a song on Cold Cuts called Best Friend. It was, yes. it was meant for Red Rose Speedway, along with The Mess.
1: I think that's probably when Paul was at his most prolific in terms of just writing material and actually taking it all the way to songs that could be performed.
2: Right. But it made me think, was there meant to be a live section of Red Rose Speedway? You know, two live songs to be included in the album is just kind of unusual,
3: is the prolific side of paul i think was still there towards the late 70s era of wings as well because you often hear lawrence juba saying that even when they'd finished doing everything for back to the egg they were still constantly in and out of the studio recording things that nobody's heard
1: the tug-of-war stuff the stuff that would eventually go on broad street no radio, no radio,
4: no radio
1: wings a demo to Almost all of that.
3: And yet none of those demos are anywhere
2: yet officially.
1: Well, that's why we need the Broad Street box set.
2: It also kind of brings to mind the human relationship aspect of it. It's like, so here's a bunch of songs that we recorded as wings, and then there comes a release from Paul where he's just done your work over it's kind of a middle finger on a personal relationship
1: yeah but paul was never the best at that
2: anyway <laughs> right hello michael leander
1: there's at least some of uh, a reason why people kept leaving wings right uh, she can't be found
0: but love doesn't care doesn't care
2: There's another song on this album called Hey Diddle, which is a cute little folky sing-along. And I kept thinking this would have really been a nice introduction to Linda as a vocalist, kind of this innocent piece.
3: I don't know why that wasn't originally used for Wings Wildlife, because that would have fitted in there. It would have. Even as like a shorter version of it, you know. A bit like he did with the lovely Lindy, he could have had it as just like a minute and a half piece to open the album or to finish one side off.
2: Not to try to second guess Paul, but I would have preferred "Hey Diddle" to Bip
1: He really, actually, should have done a full children's album.
2: He could. Well, he could
3: do it as a compilation. That's for sure. Yeah.
1: He's kind of gone back to that idea with Rupert, and then with his themes to his animated things.
4: And he did a little monster dance. He so lights on
0: his feet. It was lovely. They said, this is our fairy dance.
1: thing about paul mccartney is he can master any style of music it's amazing
2: and you have to question do you think that paul just wrote a couple of songs for his kids over the years i'm thinking there's two or three albums somewhere where he's written songs for his kids <laughs>
1: crisis
3: well he's written an entire christmas album that nobody's heard
2: we've got a career planned for him
1: (laughs) there you go prolificness that will take us to our next topic in the u.s i think there was kind of a period where the rock press in general was really down on mccartney
0: whenever things like this would happen we'd get a telegram from yoko mainly i think you know sort of saying um congratulations, you know, getting really underground with all of this. And we're going, oh, dear me, you know. I mean, the US was just brutal. This is me going down in history as this weird character who's saying, oh, no, no, I'm afraid I've got to break the Beatles up. Nothing like that ever happened. I think it lasted for longer in the UK than it did in the
3: US, I think. It took a long time. I took note of this when I was doing research earlier, and I couldn't believe that... He didn't get his first number one in the UK until Mull of Kintyre, by which time he'd already
2: had five US number ones. Oh, yeah. Okay. Would you say it was brutal, what period of time are you you talking about?
1: Pre-band on the run. Other than just a handful of songs, I mean, you know, there's certainly Uncle Albert Admiral Halsey. He had some good, solid representation from the rock press, but, I mean, Rolling Stone just criticized them to no end through the early part of the 70s. Cream Magazine...
2: I just don't see it as being all that long, I guess is what I'm saying, because Uncle Albert was a number one hit. <laughs> it was big. And that was 71.
1: In terms of years, of course, it wasn't all that long, because it was only, what, three years to Band on the Run.
2: Not even that. been on the Run was at the end of 73, and was really big into 74. I mean, it took a while to build, but a bunch of records off that. So I'm just saying, I know there was a period of time that he was considered passé.
0: And uh, we did our own artwork. It was, it was kind of funky period for Lynn and I. So when we kind of came together in this early period of ours, it got well slated by, I think it was the NME saying, oh, this artwork is terrible. Actually, I like it to this day. It's a good laugh.
2: And he would be considered passé again in his future. But at that point, it was relatively short time.
1: So two and a half, maybe
2: three years. It was almost as if he had been kind of looking at the fads of the time and trying to mimic that. I mean, his fashion sense was kind of like slayed. It didn't last all that long. He got it back, but I don't think he held on to it as long as some people think. He held on to the mullet for a long time.
1: (laughs) (laughs) In the States, Band on the Run kind of changed everything as far as how he was looked at.
2: And his songs were big. Like three songs off of Band on the Run and two or three songs off of Venus and Mars. Well, he had a number one with My Love in the US. Right. That was kind of the beginning of it. He was just coming off of the controversy of High, High, High and the slagging of Rolling Stone with their view of Sea Moon and Mary Had a Little Lamb
0: So I did to Give Ireland Back to the Irish as a protest but then they said oh he's been slated for doing that and now he's done Mary Had a Little Lamb in answer to that well I'm I'm sorry I didn't think it out that great actually you know what happened was I do things as I say that might just feel right at the time which is strange because looking at it hi hi High did
3: relatively well in the uk however my love only just made it into the top 40 in the uk <laughs> did it which really is so strange
2: yeah it fit very nicely into what was going on in the u.s charts at that point it wasn't like everybody was going wow this is a new sound, McCartney. It was like McCartney had kind of produced what a lot of people were producing. You would have had hit singles from Chicago
3: around that time.
2: Elton John.
3: Yep. Elton John for definite. That was his era, wasn't it? When he started to really make it in the States. Yeah.
1: T-Rex would have been big right about then. And then sort of the latter half of Wings, through the bust, I think McCartney held on to a pretty solid reputation here in the states for quite a while there's a whole new generation of people who probably have never seen him perform live before we asked paul how he felt he was
2: being
0: received well, i always felt part of all the peoples and all the generations anyway just being alive here on earth well you know i don't feel part of a set or a trend or anything. i just feel part of old people and part of babies i feel like we're all around them so um that doesn't kind of faze me but uh, Like, you know, playing to a whole new set of people with a whole new tour and
2: stuff is uh, gas. I mean, he had some stuff that was successful that kind of ruined his street cred (laughs) with a little luck, was kind of twee.
1: As much as everyone loved Mull of Kentire, that seems to be something that people used against him. I don't understand that. How can a song be
3: number one and sell millions and millions of records, but be bashed in such a way?
2: Well, uh, for what I've read, it was because of its very success. It was inescapable. They played it so much. And your grandmother bought it and just grossed everybody out.
3: We're going there into the famous line from John Lennon, aren't we? Where he talks about Paul's granny
2: music. <laughs> well, I don't know if it was that. I mean, you know, there was a a kind of authenticity to the feel of it. Bob Geldof actually said
3: that when he first heard Mull of Kintyre, he actually thought that it was a cover version of a traditional (laughs) folk song. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, Paul had the Pipers with him. It was both in terms of the actual bagpipe players and everything else. And I mean, the other thing we can't forget, Danny Lane co-wrote Mull of Kintyre.
3: I was about to say, not to put too fine a point on it, but the two of them together, Denny and Paul, the way that they both write, it's one of those perfect meetings of minds where they've got the best of each of them in that one song.
2: Yeah. McCartney's ear for a hook. The chorus is just stunning. And then there's that melody of the verse does have a traditional feel to it
3: but there's also the fact that some of denny's work in his solo work as well has a poetic side to it in some parts yeah because he's well known denny is for fine tuning his songs a lot of the time so he'll take ages to write something whereas paul will just write a song and say that's it done it's almost as though when i listen to mull of kintyre it's almost like denny's taken what's there, what paul's come up with and they've cleaned it up So it's perfect all the way through lyrically.
2: Right.
1: And then the next thing would be the pot bust, uh, which actually I think probably helped his cred on this side of the pond. Probably, (laughs) yes. Now, in the UK, I mean, what
3: was the thought on that at the time? I remember that being all over the news.
1: But I mean, did it make him seem somewhat more dangerous or were people willing to at least step away from this preconceived notion of who and what Paul McCartney is. I
3: think it over here th- there was a lot on the news about it at the time and it was mainly negative and then it seemed to fall along that then I mean I was very young at the time I was probably 9 years old at the time when this happened so my memory isn't that great but very soon after that you would eventually get the McCartney 2 album which was much maligned Back in the day has been, and retrospectively, it's been raised up in people's opinion since then.
2: That's kind of a fascinating thing, I would think, for Paul. He's been around. He has been praised and castigated and had stuff. Ram was critically trashed in America when it first came out, and now it's almost venerated. He recognizes that. He's probably able to weather whatever criticism goes his way for the most part.
1: But he still listens to it. I think he does genuinely believe what he wrote. I go back so far, I'm in front of me. It's like, okay, we get it, Paul. But he also seems to care what the media and what the public seems to think of him.
3: Going back to the 70s out of interest, do you think that John's relationship with Rolling Stone magazine, and I'm wondering if that might have hurt...
1: Oh, absolutely. That's part of why they wrote what they did about Paul.
3: Because John, he absolutely slated Ram when it came out, didn't like it, and he made no bones about it, the fact that he was not a fan of Ram.
4: Right. Which,
1: the arc is a little bit weird. Immediately after we lost John, Paul's rep seemed to go back up with tug-of-war. People were willing to give him consideration and look at him as, oh, yeah, he really was one of those guys in the Beatles. But then it crashed, and it crashed pretty hard.
3: Yes. But then again, Tug of War, for everything that people say, it is a really well-constructed and put-together album. To a degree, it deserves the veneration that it gets. Although some other albums that is put out perhaps are overlooked because of these highly thought-of albums.
1: And then you got Broad Street, which effectively killed Paul's rep on this side of the pond. This movie is billed as the day in the life of a rock star. And if it were a day in the life of Paul McCartney, who was 42 years
3: old, a multi-millionaire, a genius, and a really interesting guy, it might have been a good movie. Unfortunately, in the film, McCartney plays not so much a beetle as a monkey. He's just some simple little kind of guy who goes around in the backseat of a Rolls Royce making a fool out of himself. This movie is a real disgrace. I give it one star. I'm Roger Ebert. What happened with Press to Play in the U.S.? Was that sort of like just nobody knew about it?
2: Yeah.
1: It was just kind of another album.
2: It never got any traction. There was so much going on in the States musically. New Wave was like it.
1: And then Flowers in the Dirt and working with Elvis Costello, at least in the States, That kind of started his climb back up. The Beatles are the number one recording group of all time. Only Elvis had more top 40 hits.
3: But McCartney hasn't had a number one song in six years. And the cold fact is,
1: a lot of the pop world wrote him off. But he's got a new album out now, and the critics like it. His rep really hasn't fallen significantly since then. I think
3: in the UK, perhaps, Flaming Pie would probably be an enormous album over here. That I think that's probably the period when he started to come back in the UK, perhaps. I, I might be wrong.
1: The way I read it, the media started to look at him a little bit differently, and the general public started to acknowledge McCartney a little bit more in the UK. But I kind of think it really wasn't until Chaos on Creation that he actually really got people to sit down and listen to him again.
3: Okay, so Flaming Pie was probably the beginning of a rise, so he sort of like garnered some interest from the Flaming Pie era, because I, I seem to remember him.
1: That would be post Anthology and Beautiful Night. I mean, you got Linda passing, where everybody felt kind of sorry for him, but it didn't do much for his rep as a musician.
3: And of course, then when he got married to Heather, that didn't exactly creatively put him in a good place either. For people who didn't seem to warm to that either.
1: Yeah, we didn't have to endure what you did with the second Mrs. McCartney and Paul going on reality shows and game shows. And, you know, who wants to be a millionaire with Paul and Heather? It's like I can see why that wouldn't have done much good for his rep. Absolutely. And then, kind of post the divorce, as he started to grow into his senior status. Uh, that's kind of when people started to put away the wacky maca thumbs aloft thing in the UK. You know, because there have been longer periods of
3: time between his releases since that period. I think he changed management to Scott around that time. I'm not completely sure. Because they were taking longer to make albums, perhaps he was putting more work, recording more, and giving more of a choice of material and perhaps honing the albums a bit better so that they would have more interest with people.
1: I think the only person that got a standing ovation here, besides you, is Don Rickles. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'd stand for Don. And you would stand for Don, of course. Uh, since the last time we spoke, Paul's Glastonbury performance has come out. It has. First off, the weirdness. The BBC on TV aired the entire show, except for in spite of all the danger. Why well, cut the one song? Yes,
3: it's available on the streaming. I've watched the whole thing from beginning to end with that in there.
1: Originally, it was announced as there was going to be a two-hour version of the show, but then they ended up showing the whole thing, save in spite of all the danger. It's like, I don't get that.
3: If they were running a bit behind, then you just make the next program five minutes later to make up for one song.
1: Well, especially since it was a weird length of time anyway. It was, you know, two hours and 39 minutes. It would have been two hours and 42 minutes.
2: So the earliest song that Paul ever wrote, they cut?
3: Yeah, because they didn't do I Lost My
2: Little Girl this time. That's weird. He does it at the start of his acoustic set. I have no explanation for that.
1: Like I say, if they were to cut other songs, it would have made some sense for time, but it's like, nope, we're going to show the entire concert except for this one song, and then we'll put the one song in iPlayer. Maybe they wanted to have an iPlayer exclusive. (laughs) Maybe. Which also makes no sense. Blackbird singing in
0: the dead of night. Take these sunken eyes and learn to see. All your life. Waiting for this moment to be free You were only waiting for this moment to be free You were only waiting for this moment to be free
1: Paul's voice sounded really pretty good. It sounded better than it did live, I think.
3: My first note here, when he was doing Junius Farm, I actually wrote, his voice is so much better than it has been for a long while.
1: I mean, it was, it was pretty good on, on this last tour, the Got Back tour, but on this show in particular, you know, he was pulling out all the stops. Maybe I'm Amazed even
4: worked. You know,
1: there, there were a couple little slightly creaky moments, but for the most part, There was not one really sort of make-you-wince moment in the show.
3: No, it all worked, like I said, except for the odd bit. He was always there. Even if he's not singing the high bits, he's sort of been really clever and pulled it back to a lower octave. And then in some of those moments, he's had Abe harmonizing with that higher original vocal note
1: really very cool what Paul is doing there. And then in regards to what we were talking about earlier, both the press and the fans have just gone crazy over this Glastonbury show. Seems impossible that that we're able to sort of experience him. You know, Hunter Davis said in an
0: article recently that we're, we're lucky to have him among us, and that's how I feel tonight.
3: It's the whole UK-American thing. I, I don't get it at all. They just don't know what's going on with Paul, I don't think. I think they just think, oh, is this old man who's playing this, and then suddenly he plays Glastonbury, and, oh, he was really good at that. He's not been like that for years. Well, you wouldn't know because you've not actually seen him for years yourself, personally.
1: I've read at least somewhere between half a dozen and a dozen reviews And they all say, this is very good, this is possibly the best show of Glastonbury. At least half of them are up there saying, this is the single best Paul McCartney show of all time. Now, that may be taking it a little bit far.
3: Very. I liked the previous Glastonbury, I'll be honest.
1: Well, that's been 19 years ago now.
2: I like the 1976.
1: This is the 50th or 60th anniversary of Glastonbury, right? They've been doing that for a long time. They have, yes. So Wings could have potentially played Glastonbury, but I I guess it really wasn't quite as big a thing in 1976.
3: No, no, but Hawkwind were really good, apparently.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The other thing, as with the final show here in the States, he bought in a couple guests. First off, he bought on Dave Grohl.
3: His first appearance on stage since his drummer died. Right.
1: Uh, And they did Saw Her Standing There, and they did Band on the Run.
3: did you think of the band on the run by the shared vocals
1: it was good
2: it wasn't anything fantastic but i actually thought that there was more room for dave to do something had he wanted but you know you bring up a great point you know he's i would think he's still probably in some emotional place because of taylor so it was okay
3: i have an interesting what if scenario for you john what if Taylor Hawkins hadn't have passed away and both of them would have appeared as guests for Band on the Run and then Taylor would have taken some of the higher parts?
2: <laughs> you know, I don't know. I mean, Abe is such an integral part of that act. I don't know that whether Taylor would actually replace him or what. It, it would be... a Interesting thing.
1: I don't know whether he would have done that. Although it might have been cool to have two drummers doing that solo on the end. Oh,
3: on the end, yes. That would have been interesting. Yes, both of them do like a a drum
2: battle.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Band on the Run, they kind of traded off verses. Isn't that right?
2: Not as much as I thought they were going to do, though. I mean, especially with that chorus, which is that hard band on the and I can't do it. Uh but I thought Dave could really do that, but he didn't really, you know. No. He, was, he feathered yeah. it and let Paul in on it basically.
3: Yeah, I was going to say it's weird because I'm sure we all know that there's there's a great version of the song by the Foo Fighters which is available and he shows on that Dave does that he can go all the way through the entire song and and yeah. pull it off. Band on the-
2: Yeah. There's some tough notes in that song
1: But Paul still manages to hit them <laughs> More or less Yeah, and Abe <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. Abe Saw her standing there was kind of an interesting choice. They've done that before, although the song that he usually does with Dave Grohl is Long Tall Sally. The
3: interesting choice will be the next guest that he brings on, and their song choice, uh, one of
2: those. How was Adele?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Nope, it wasn't Adele. It wasn't Noel Gallagher. It wasn't Billie Eilish. But he had his friend from Jersey, Bruce Springsteen, the boss, on to also do two songs.
2: There's a pattern emerging. Yeah.
1: The same two songs he did in Jersey. Everything's legal in Jersey. In Soundtrack, they did a different Bruce song.
3: And then Bruce Springsteen joined in the fun. A really good version of Glory Days as well, and an interesting one was we. So we were watching it, and then I said to my other half Louise, I said, "Oh, they're using the horn section on Glory Days. That works nicely."
2: Yeah. Do, 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 do,
1: do, do. Well, it's, it's a simple song for them to play. But That's it, true.
2: it's definitely a, it, that works. The blaring horns on that is—it emphasizes
3: what they do on the record because it's two instruments on the record, isn't it? I think it's the piano and a guitar harmonizing with each other. That uh, on the record, isn't it? Seems
2: like there's an organ too. But...
1: Okay, so the other song he did with Bruce was uh, "I Want to Be Your Man."
3: That's true. He did do "I Want to Be Your
2: Man." Yes, yep. Did. Bruce sing it or did Paul sing
1: it? Uh, They traded off verses.
3: Yeah, but I, I got the impression that Bruce sang a, f- a bit more than
2: Paul did.
1: Eh, maybe. It was pretty even, I think.
2: That's yeah. weird. You would think you'd let your guests sing more. I mean, you got the whole concert, damn it.
1: funny that you say that because other people were saying, why in the hell is Paul letting Bruce take over with Glory Days? It's like, it's your show. It's not his show. And I was like, well...
4: <laughs>
3: technically paul's already doing a song that's not his with something that he's been doing for how many years now
2: right yeah, it's a shame he could do other george songs yes i love paul's
3: version of um for you blue concert the for George, concert yeah, for george
2: I liked what he did, uh, All Things Was Pass.
3: That's even better. I love that version of that song. Yeah,
1: yeah. he did that for a couple of years, actually, before something became the song that he did in the set.
3: Yeah,
2: because he does the ukulele.
3: Yeah, he started with the ukulele thing for the with the concert for George, didn't he?
1: Yeah, that was the first time that he did it.
3: Yeah, he did it first, there it worked, and he thought, right, I've got a new thing to use now. I'll, I'll <laughs> use this now for the next
2: 20 years. But he didn't nick it off of Joe Brown.
1: <laughs> he has to bring it out because it's the ukulele that George gave him.
2: Uh, ah. Yeah. Bring back Ramon.
1: So, <laughs> but he plays Ramon in his soundcheck. Not all the time, but he does play it in his soundcheck.
2: Well, that doesn't really count, does it?
1: Well, I mean, it is a public soundcheck now. You, you have an audience, so. Just give us a longer concert. Three hours isn't long enough.
2: It was just amazing that. The only thing he did was take off his jacket. You know, yeah.
3: he, he did and the same thing at Glastonbury. He just took off his jacket and then he's got he's this worried. lovely black waistcoat on underneath the uh, uh, the well, collarless jacket.
2: I thought he was wearing you know red suspenders, you know, and he never seemed to really break a sweat. And it was two, two hours, something. And I thought, God, uh, young people don't do that.
1: It used to be that he didn't take any water during the show for whatever reason. Now he takes a single drink in the middle of the show and he makes a big show of taking a sip of water.
3: Yes. That reminded me of one bit that jumped out at me where he said, was it, we'll break through the mist of time, blah, 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 and Liverpool. And I thought, yeah, he's using the same pattern.
1: <laughs> he had to change that. Well, I mean, you know. He's got it down. This is his best show ever. That's what the British media tell us.
3: That's right. And it's the best script he's ever written since uh, Give My Regards.
2: So he's worked up an act finally.
3: Yep.
1: He basically treats this thing like a Broadway show.
2: Yep. I'm sorry, Johnny, sold out. Uh, It's like going to see Liza Minnelli now.
1: We're not going to do that. Although it's the Brits who seem to harp on that Paul looks like an old woman thing. The guy who used to host The Late Show, who insisted on saying that Paul looked like Angela Lansbury. Ah! <laughs> Welcome. Welcome to the Great Detectives Club.
2: Oh, hey, I know you. You're Paul McCartney. <laughs>
4: time you must be new here no
2: i'm jessica fletcher oh yes the
3: best-selling murder mystery author
4: yes i am the most famous detective around here
3: oh dear Well. Wow.
1: and this was 10 years ago mind you
3: the press are getting nasty oh
1: Okay, I mean, he's right. There's a very slight resemblance there, but, you know, you he, he start to shrivel up when you get that age. Yeah. But
3: luckily, he's never played Elvis's mother.
2: Angela Lansbury. Let's
1: talk a little about
2: Elvis Presley. You were seven years older, I think, but you played his mother in Blue Hawaii. What was that experience like? Well,
0: I was uh, uh, obviously awed by Andy, you know, being in the, pre- the presence. And, uh, but he was an awfully nice young man in those days.
1: We're not going to talk about that, although I'm sure Tom Hanks will now have some Colonel Tom stories to tell Paul the next time they run into each other.
3: Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm looking forward to Tom Hanks and Paul doing that thing you do live on stage together.
1: It's interesting that Paul never spoke about the film, considering how close he and Tom Hanks actually are. I mean, the the Beatle references in it are right there, right out front. And it's like, i never heard Paul say a single thing about that movie.
3: No, but I've taken us on too far a tangent here, haven't I?
1: That's okay. Because people will be getting this on the holiday, so nobody's going to be listening until a couple days later anyway. (laughs) (laughs) all right thank you john will be back in two weeks and hopefully we can start getting on a regular schedule hopefully we'll have some announcements of something other than olivia's book and hopefully we'll be able to review something we shall talk soon thanks martin pods like us you're getting ready for your next season
3: first episode comes out tonight but for those of you listening it will already be out and you'll probably be waiting for episode two and if you go to YouTube, you will now get video versions of the episodes with Season 6. Take care.
1: Bye. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by J. Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California.
0: i tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals but they've got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going.
4: Turned up nice again.